You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Reach Rice, director at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University, and you're listening to our Religica Theo Lab. Today, there is a lot of conversation taking place about the health and frailty of the American democracy. Many may point to the insurrection on January 6th of 2021 as a flashpoint. But in fact, we know that there are grumbles of historical disassociation that go back decades that contribute to a feeling of a lack of connection in this country. Yet religious leaders have a role to play for assisting in enhancing a sense of communitarian well-being, to pointing out the public virtues that should shape our shared lives. This is essential for our future, for our children's future, for the future of all of those around us. So I've invited... Pastor Rick Rouse. He's a Lutheran pastor, professor, author, and popular conference speaker to come talk with us about these themes. Rick and Professor Paul Ingra have just completed a text titled The World is About to Turn with a forward by Peter Marty. The byline here is Mending a Nation's Broken Faith. And that is what we'll be discussing today. How we understand the future of democracy. What is the big lie, so-called? What seems to be ailing us at our core with our belief in institutions and in the narratives that used to guide our shared national fabric? And we'll be discussing the role of religious leaders, clergy, and others. What are the essential gifts that they bring and that are so meaningful to our lives today? Take a listen. Well, Rick, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today in the Religica Theolab podcast at the Center. I really appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. Good to be with you today. I'd like to start with, you know, there's a recent article in the Washington Post where Ruth Ben Gates notes that we're losing our democracy day by day and is challenging journalists to become more aware of this, perhaps for a population to become more aware of this so that we're centering ourselves on the story around us in terms of the threats to democracy. Ruth is a scholar of autocracy and the author of Strongman, Mussolini to the Present. This brings us really to some questions I have for you. You have just recently written, co-written a text with Paul Ingram titled, The World is About to Turn. It strikes me in the front cover, there are manifold colors for the listener. I encourage you to pick up this text where it's in prism form, like shattered glass. And the headliner for the text is the following, Mending a Nation's Broken Faith. You note in chapter one, the failure of the American religious experiment. Let's just dive into this. What is broken or where is the failure? What's happening to us? And why is it happening today, Rick? Well, I think a number of things are broken. Our ability to have civil conversation with those who differ from us. The ability of political leaders to focus on the common good rather than on their partisan agenda. The use of religion as a weapon, especially uh, those associated with the white evangelical right. The idea that to be a patriot in America today is that you have to be a white Christian and adhere to a specific religious and political agenda. That's the challenge and the I think the danger of what we're seeing as national Christianity or some kind of a, a, a patriotic Christianity in this country, which is a threat to both our democracy and to Christianity. A statistic that is troubling 
to me is from a new Barna survey of clergy, which suggests that in 2021, two out of every five pastors have considered quitting. This is up 10 points from the previous year, and nearly half of those under the age of 45 are considering leaving full-time ministry. This is partly because of the strain of the pandemic, but also because congregations are increasingly divided over cultural and political issues, and pastors feel caught in the middle. There's a brokenness throughout our culture, and that brokenness is being felt in our congregations. I want to spend a little bit of time with this in terms of the two out of five pastors are considering quitting and the kinds of cultural and political issues and divides that you see. I want to talk more about this, but is there anything more you can say about the experience of those pastors qualitatively in terms of their comments? Is it about exhaustion that they're experiencing, cultural exhaustion, do you think, a sense of displacement perhaps with what they thought would be a way that they would serve a public or maybe a sense that the public itself is so incoherent at the moment that creating a sense of community seems relatively not just not just arduous, but perhaps even impossible in some areas of the country. Is there further detail on that that you can clarify? Well, I think that part of it is the certainly the cultural divide that is currently being experienced in this country. The use of cultural wedge issues by our politicians and by religious leaders in this country, you know, whether it be around the issues of abortion or racism. I mean, we can go on and on, but the the fact that pastors are feeling that they're caught in the middle of trying to maneuver through the divisions in their congregations. My son, for example, is a pastor, and recently we had some conversation around the ELCA the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is one of the more progressive denominations in this country. And we've taken some pretty progressive stands regarding, for example, the need to have more interfaith dialogue, the uh, uh, reparations for Native Americans and for uh, Black Americans. We had issued a statement condemning white supremacy, and the list goes on. And so as we talk about that with this leadership team, some of them said, you know, we're not ready to leave the congregation, but we cannot support these kinds of progressive stances. You know, so he's finding that there's this this uh, disconnect in congregations uh, over what the denomination believes and what they personally are politically or culturally able to understand and, and accept. And one example, in North Carolina, the uh, Synod recently had 40 pastors tender their resignation, 40 pastors, and primarily it was around cultural and political issues, that they just, they found themselves in the midst of of trying to help congregations uh, deal with them, and, and they were felt inadequate, not prepared to be able to just simply carry on their their pastoral ministry in that kind of a setting. So it's a time of great stress for pastors in our congregations. I'd like to ask you in a minute what we might do to help facilitate and resource those pastors. I know that you're, as an active interest, as an educator and as a member of the clergy yourself, but for the moment, we've had some conversation about this text, The Big Sort by Bill Bishop, written in 2008, a story of how the United States became a country of swelling cultural division, economic 
separation and political balkanization, that he makes a case for America's self-inflicted wounds. And you've spoken to some of this above. A lot has changed. And it reminds me also of Thomas Zimmer is a visiting professor at Georgetown who notes that there's a kind of need for a, a reactionary counter mobilization or a mobilization, pardon me, to counter the, the kind of the cultural divisions that we're seeing today that you're referring to. And how dangerous are those divisions in our country since 2007, let's say, if we just look back? And, and what do you believe lies ahead if we can't get serious about what's killing our public forum and indeed uh, is a real threat to our liberal democracy? We are more divided as a nation than at any time since the Civil War. What makes this so dangerous is a stunning 34% of Americans now say using violence against the government and those you disagree with is justified. Now, this is up from only 16% in 2011. And a recent Washington Post University of Maryland survey shows that a, while a solid majority of 62% of Americans say violence is never justified, this is down from 90% of Americans said it was never justified from a poll taken in the late 90s. So you can see the trajectory in this country. I really fear for our democracy. Mm. Unless safeguards are put in place at the federal level to assure voting rights, it is likely that politicians will do their best to manipulate the results in the coming years. Uh, already half of the country's state legislators have passed laws seriously hindering the ability to vote, mm -hmm. uh, including limiting number of polling places, ability to obtain absentee ballots, strict ID requirements. In some cases, GOP legislators are also giving themselves the ability to overturn election results. So our country needs the give and take of healthy, a healthy two-party system where we can have genuine civil conversation around difficult issues. And rather than using cultural wedge issues, we should be discussing policies that benefit the common good. And in our congregations and communities, we need to stop seeing each other as the enemy. I think that is uh, genuinely a troubling place to be where anybody who disagrees with us or who's on the other side is seen as evil or the enemy. Mm -hmm. Well, it has a way of depersonalizing those individuals and communities on the other side, as you mentioned, in cultural wedge issues. And there are iconoclasts on either side. I mean, I look at some of the news media outlets and I think to myself, there's not only a, a lack of willingness to engage in the kind of collaborative discourse that you're suggesting that's politically minded and culturally mindful, but also that many of those individuals have no vested interest to create a kind of collaboration because their audiences aren't looking for that either. We've discussed a little bit this concept of the big lie. And what does the lie want us to believe? Does it want us to believe that our separation is a necessity of our current moment, is unavoidable? Does it want us to believe about ourselves? What does it want us to believe about our fight at school boards, for instance, or on main streets, as you and I have discussed? Or with regard to the insurrection at the nation's capital on January 6, 2021? What is the big lie that we can't seem to shake about ourselves in this country and that's really undoing us? Well, I think, I think the big lie takes many forms. I think it's interesting that retired General Stanley McChrystal said in an interview in Time magazine recently that one of our biggest threats is disinformation. Mm. 
And it comes to us in all forms, from talk show hosts to social media posts. And the big lie can take many different forms. The big lie in part is about the 2020 presidential election, where over 60% of Republicans believe that the election was fraudulent, stolen, which it wasn't. But it's so much bigger than that. It's the inability of our country to face a checkered past, to come to terms with the dark side of our history that includes racism, slavery, genocide of Native peoples. Unlike countries like South Africa, Canada, and even Australia, who have participated recently in a process of truth and reconciliation, particularly with their Native peoples, we would rather pretend that the past is not so bad, or what happened on January 6th a year ago was not so bad. We would rather believe the myth that America can do no wrong. You know, we would rather believe the myth than reality or the truth. It's interesting that 24 state legislatures have now passed laws banning the teaching of Black history or businesses conducting anti-racism training. 24 state legislatures. I think a big lie is that America is not a racist culture. I've been reading a new book by Jermaine Marshall, Christianity Corrupted, the Scandal of White Supremacy, in which he suggests that there is a correlation between racism and oppressive Christian theologies, and how white Christianity has been complicit in promoting racism and white privilege in this country. You know, it's uh, the big lie is made up of a lot of things. I think the big lie is not being able to face our own complicity and, you know, how we are complicit in uh, what's happened in this country. The fact that we, we are still experiencing a, a racism. And that we, rather, we would rather um, speak to our base and believe alternative realities. There are those, Rick, in, in, who would be detractors of this conversation who would say that our emphasis on genocide or on clarity on the history of enslaved peoples or on calling into question the need for anti-racist training, that all of this and more, the 1619 historical reconfiguration of what actually happened before the revolution in the American experience, historically at a curricular level that could be taught in our schools, that all of this is actually a way of defying democracy itself, that what we're doing is not recognizing the clear features of democracy about which a country can be proud, and that our work is really, our work is really deconstructive to democracy rather than constructive. And that we're the ones, uh, if there is such a camp, those who are calling into question the fragility of democracy today, that have somehow forgotten the heritage that is America. How do you respond to those kinds of critiques, which you might say are really participating in this narrative of the lie? Well, I think the first step is to go back to the actual history of our, the founding of our country. Right. If you're really, rather than trying to reconstruct a false narrative about how this country was founded and the principles on which it was founded, that it was somehow placed here by God to be the savior of the world. City on the hill, as Reagan once said, if you go back to talk about how the founders of this country were really concerned about establishing a democracy, it was an experiment unlike that in Europe, where they came from, 
where there was not a separation of church and state, where the church had power over the state and the state had power over the church. There was this influence that that they were trying to avoid to assure people's freedom of religion, but it was also freedom from religion. It was the, the ability of people to be able to live in a democracy that was not controlled by religious tenets or by any one church. And it was a democracy that, as I say, experimental democracy, of one that would be ruled by the people, but it would be with safeguards. And to read the writings of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and John Adams, time and time again, they talked about the importance of the tenets of, of equality, of a nation for all people, even though they were slaveholders. That's something that needs to be also recognized. But I think, you know, to go back to, you know, it's about knowing your history rather than making up history. It's about recognizing what happened with the Doctrine of Discovery, which uh, was a document that actually came from Pope Gregory that gave permission to the European explorers to go and exploit countries during the time of exploration and claim that any place that was not Christian was fair game. You could take the land, you could enslave the people. It also comes out of a, a European understanding of race, of racism, what qualified as, uh, as race. And it set up this, again, sense of a white superiority. Again, it's a matter of being informed about what our history really is. We can make up all kinds of things about what this nation was or should be. But if we don't face the truth, we can never move forward and we can never find a, a way forward. Now, Rick, there are those who would say that part of the problem with the left right now is that it's in its wokeness, it's really kind of eating itself alive because one is never woke enough and there's a kind of repudiation of the left onto itself that is creating an internal conversation in the left and in particular in the far left at the same time that those in the right or far right in this country are mobilizing. It's a more crystalline kind of thing. They're showing up at board meetings. They're working in you know, voting districts. They're engaged politically from local to regional contexts. And that kind of mobilization is taking place at the same time that the left is not paying attention. So the left is having a conversation about how we need to encourage and increase democracy and feeling threatened at the same time that the right doesn't want to look to the left as a conversation partner, but simply wants to become, let's say, a more coercive force. Now, that seems to be part of the rhetoric, what I'm describing that's out there. What do you make of that? What are your concerns about that kind of distinction between the left and right right now? Well, one of the examples is what happened at the Virginia governor's race, yes, uh, right. where Terry McAuliffe was trying to defend the right of school boards to make decisions without consulting with parents, not to have the parents mm -hmm. dictate, in other words. And yet the Republicans jumped on that and said, no, we have a right. Parents have a right to dictate what is taught to our children. Mm -hmm. So there, there's that, again, this cultural divide about what's appropriate, what's helpful. As we were talking, school boards 
mm-hmm. and not just school boards, but have the uh, people coming and threatening them and other public officials, you know, the whole fabric of our society is coming unraveled mm-hmm. as we have people on one side so adamant about maintaining the right individual rights mm-hmm. that they feel like they can threaten others. And on the other side, we have the uh, inability to somehow recognize the visceral nature that's coming out of that feeling of a powerlessness. You know, I'm not sure what the answer is of how we, you know, how do we listen to one another and respect in a respectful way without feeling threatened by one another. I read this past weekend, no less than four articles in you know, this is popular media, Washington Post, New York Times, other, you know, CNN, Fox, you know, just kind of looking at all of the different media outlets and print and also, you know, audio and video. And there seems to be a common theme of reference to 1854 and leading up to the Civil War. And I, I'm not an alarmist in this way, but I am concerned when we start to have or hear a discourse for the first time in my life about the differences that seem to be so great as we're describing them that people are talking about dissolution. And one of those sub-themes, and I'd like to get your comments on this, and I think it's helpful also for clergy as and religious leaders as they think about our context today. One of those sub-themes is that the structures that guide democratic well-being that we've entrusted ourselves to, that we didn't question, seem not only to have been weakened over the last many years, but that our ability to believe in them any longer as meaningful arbiters of daily life, that they're actually looking out not only for our best interest, but that they are capable of doing so, that our trust in the capacity of those structures has diminished to such a degree that we feel in some ways in a country as though we're unmoored, that somehow, which allows for, let's, uh, sheriffs, let's say, in Texas or other states, to not follow a direct order by a sitting president because it's an executive order and this is a state's rights issue or Navy SEALs to pursue an appellate process because they refuse to become vaccinated, which is, a you know, again, an executive order from the commander in chief of, of the United States, which is also the sitting president, that there's a sense in which we not only no longer believe, but we call into question those structures that creates a tremendous amount of cultural vulnerability, doesn't it? A sense of a lack of a real groundedness, I think, that's been saturated within culture. What do you make of that? Is that an overreach on my part? Is that an overassessment? Or do you think that that's part of our predicament? No, I think you're right on. And I think, you know, it stems with the the growing, and this has been going on now since, I'd say since the late 60s, 70s, this growing distrust of anybody that's in authority and a, a lack of trust in organizations and institutions. We've seen, uh, I think that's, we've seen the uh, massive decline in membership in congregations and in civic organizations. It's almost this veer to individualism that we don't need the institution anymore. We Institutions and, and governments, a part of that, are not really concerned about our best interest it's this rampant individualism that's taking place in this. It's not just about states' rights. It's about my individual rights. And we saw that, we see that happening, you know, in, this, in response to the pandemic. You know, it should not have been an issue about getting vaccinated or having a mask. 
wearing a mask to protect yourself and those around you. But it suddenly becomes an issue of, you know, my individual right, my, my liberty is being threatened. What is it about me, you know, so it becomes so centric to, you know, so important that I'm more important than the rest of society. It's a very me-centered understanding. I'm not sure what the future holds, particularly if we are all just kind of focused on ourselves or our own little tribe, how we can somehow reclaim what is meant by the common good. Well, that's an excellent point. I think, and this is the other piece, that our distrust in those institutions or national narratives or stories that defined us may lead us to the point where we don't know what our common belief system is anymore. But maybe we underestimated the fact that once we remove narratives, other narratives grow. We've moved perhaps as a country from a place of questioning authority to um, suspicion of the structures and those authorities, and then the reinvention of new narratives, many of which are contrarian to a healthy democracy at its root, which would suggest, really, I have to say, irrational theories about what's actually happening inside of government and kind of creating a diabolical narrative of uh, the left or the right. I mean, that kind of narrative creates divisions that become increasingly dangerous because now it's not only, say, one belief after another, but we believe that those beliefs themselves have some sort of deeper value about which I'm willing to fight, even if they have no grounding in fact. That's right. That's right. Well, and part of that, too, is the fact that we'll make up a narrative to please our base, whether it's true or not. Yeah. And whether it's on the right or the left. And the fact that in Congress, for example, whether it's Republicans or the Democrats, to be obstructionist, to say our party is going to oppose everything that comes from the other side, you know, and to take pride in being being an obstructionist. Or to, uh, I was reading that, you know, in spite of the fact that the economy is doing well, the Republicans, for example, will say, you know, will say everything negative about the economy. And in spite of what an individual might be experiencing that, you know, oh, my stock is growing or things are going pretty well in my life. I'm not going to even believe reality. I'm going to believe what I'm being told, uh, what the narrative is being shared with me, because I'm a member of that tribe. So whatever that tribe is telling me or whatever I'm reading on social media or whatever the latest conspiracy theory is that I've heard on a talk show, it must be true. Uh, You know, it's like we check our brains at the door and we don't use common sense to try to, again, using our own critical thinking to find out for ourselves, to do the investigation and to try to figure out what is the truth. You know, that's the piece, isn't it? That conspiracy theories are, they're so comfortable. Theories of this are so helpful to us in some ways because they're so enclosed. They have a clear beginning, middle and end. There's not a lot to question there. It's it's almost like moving into a prefabricated house. Like everything's there for you. You know who your friend and ally is. 
you know who the purported enemy or adversaries are, and you can see yourself functioning in this new worldview that makes things meaningful again, you know, at a time where the national fabric and those other guiding narratives, as we've discussed, are dissolving for many, those kinds of enclosed little theories, it's like a it's like a conceptual lunchable, you know, it just grabs hold of you. It has a little bit of nutrition for a little while before you realize as some QAnon conspiracists have realized, you know, with some of those timelines that came up and passed without effect, a former president was not resituated in August of 21, for instance, back in the white house that suddenly you become anemic again. So there's a new kind of theory that needs to be purported in order to become the object of your next kind of focus for truth or gaze on truth for the next six months before you have another problem. And that's been the case of many religious cults, you know, throughout our history. Yeah. Where when one prophecy doesn't work out, Mm -hmm. you know, we go to the next one Mm -hmm. and we keep perpetuating these lies or these alternative realities because people have been, you know, I say brainwashed uh, in a sense Mm -hmm. to believe that whatever the leader says is the truth. You know, we don't, again, use our our own reasoning power to figure out maybe this is not really something that I should be buying into. We used to think the National Enquirer was the main source of, of a lot of these fiction, you know, fictional conspiracy accounts. But now, it's not just the National Enquirer. I mean, you can, uh, you know, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories on talk shows and in the in social media. How do we filter through all of that? How do we somehow manage to uh, filter through what is true, what is not true? It's like all of life has become fiction. Right. And it brings us back to why it's so important for those in positions of influence and capacity. And, you know, religious leaders have a responsibility, I would say, that not only to be resourced well, but to respond with the kinds of public virtues that you've mentioned that we're talking about and that diminished trust. And maybe that's the biggest lie of all around what you've said. I mean, who knows? But this sense of there's nothing to put one's trust in. But there is. There are tremendous wells of trust. And we know that the many of the sacred texts that guide these different religious traditions over millennia, where you've seen you know, significant upheaval politically and culturally, and yet there are narratives that continue to guide. And I would say a number of those that do and are still meaningful, very meaningful for us today, have to do with trust and hope in one another and the the binds of community that are essential and a deep kind of abiding sense of belonging to core values that are essential to our shared life. Somehow, those clergy will have to be reminded that they're also reminders, really, themselves. They are amplifying that narrative. Maybe I've understated that. How would you finesse that even further? What do you think? No, I think you're right. And I think it's a matter of claiming what we have been given, the sacred texts through our tradition, the values that have been handed down to us, and the uh, responsibility that uh, we have as uh, religious and political leaders in this country to speak the truth, to be conveyors of, of compassion and honesty, 
I hearken back to, again, what the prophet Micah said, what does the Lord require of us, Mm. but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And I'd add, to walk humbly with one another. It strikes me that in the American experience, and I want to move to our next question, but really in the American experience, there's a kind of xenophobia or fear of the other that's baked in pretty early. And even before the the drafters of the Constitution in 1787 constructed that document. And there is a, a sense in which, on top of that, fear of the other in a national need for inclusivity, we can become you know, virulently exclusivist at a time where to be a patriot and to be a white Christian of a particular brand seem wedded to one another. On the one hand, incredibly inclusivist in its own community, but is calling into question other communities' rights to exist and still be patriotic in this country. So you can be a patriot, but you have to be a certain kind of patriot. And you have to be a certain kind of political agent or a citizen, which increasingly is very restrictive. And that is providing, I think, a tremendous climate of disinformation that you've been mentioning. And going back to where clergy are in terms of feeling unprepared, where you have religious leaders that today in this national fabric, there are certain public virtues or strengths that they must have access to as they think about the national history, as they think about what it means to be community. I wonder if you could identify what are two or three of those kind of public virtues that clergy should be aspiring to that helps get at this climate of disinformation? That's the first question. I think the second would be, is there a connection, do you think, between a healthy democracy and something you said earlier, a fully resourced religious community that isn't exhausted by our current climate so that they can be agents of kind of communitarian-based healing that's so necessary in the world. What do you think about both of those in terms of response to those questions? Well, in terms of virtues or what religious leaders, I think, need to be able to do in terms of their role, both in the congregation, but also in terms of their public persona, I think our religious leaders must first of all be truth tellers. To do that, we must be able to reclaim the role of prophet and public theologian, to educate, to inform, just as I've been saying, to not be afraid of the truth and to help people understand where they've come from and to help them discern, to think critically about our history, about their religion, and to give them some tools to discern with theological reflection how they deal with the cultural issues of the day. And secondly, it's the task of bringing people together, helping them find a way to have civil and respectful conversation around difficult issues. There are some great resources to help with this. One of them is braverangels.com. It's a group that's made up of people from red states, blue states, people that come from different perspectives, but that have a common and genuine desire to be able to talk together, have respectful conversation. So braverangels.com is a place to go to seek training and resources to help people in your congregation have those 
conversations. Finally, I think we need to remind people that Jesus gave us a commandment to love one another, to love your neighbor, regardless of their point of view. One of my heroes, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, wisely said, differences are not intended to separate or to alienate. We are different precisely in order to realize our need for one another. We are different precisely in order to realize our need for one another. I think, you know, the other thing that I thought might be helpful in this conversation we're having to recognize the difference between, it's something I've been pondering in some of my reading and some of the podcasts and documentaries that I've been watching, the difference between uh, white Christianity and black Christianity. And again, first of all, white Christianity in this country has been focused on, you know, God as the victor. Yeah. God as the judge. And in the black tradition, God is the liberator. It's a theology of liberation and justice. And what can we learn from the black tradition, from black theology, that may help us maneuver these waters? It's just recognizing, you know, the color of our God makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's a congregation here in Seattle, Washington, that recently replaced a window where they had a white Jesus to uh, make the Jesus, a more Palestinian, Mideastern. Yeah, how he would have looked. Uh, right. How he would have really looked. Yeah. Saying that the color of our God makes a difference. If he's only the white Jesus that many of us grew up with, who looks more Scandinavian than Palestinian, mm-hmm. it tends to reinforce that sense that, yes, the white race is superior. God is a God of many colors, of course. I think one of my Probably one of my great experiences of that was going to the church in Nazareth in the Holy Land in Mm -hmm. in Israel. And in the uh, church, all the uh, paintings around the sanctuary are Madonna and child in different colors. I mean, different ethnic groups. It was a wonderful representation how God is not a white God or a black God, or a, but God is, is really incorporated in all of us, regardless of, of our race or, race or ethnic background. Mm-hmm. You know, that inclusiveness that somehow we need to recapture, and that inclusiveness which makes this such a rich tapestry of a nation, mm-hmm. rather than seeing someone as the other and demonizing them because they are different from us, recognizing that we are all children of God. We are all people of worth. We all have something to contribute for the common good. I wonder if you mentioned we're different precisely in our need to recognize one another. And there are different ways in which religious leadership in the country can do many of the things you just identified in terms of identifying the kinds of public virtues that can guide communitarian life the ways in which their own communities can be collaborating with others, the way that they can differentiate between, say, the big lie or features of that and the kinds of truths that should be guiding a healthy democracy. Today, you're a Christian pastor with decades of experience, drawing from that experience, from all of those years, from burying the dead to blessing the newborn and everything in between. Please put some flesh on this question. 
What do you encourage the listener to do now and tomorrow for the sake of a shared future that you believe is essential to our collective well-being? Well, I think that every one of us, the average person in the pew, or if they're not a practicing religious person, I think we can all become better informed of what is going on in this country, both past and present. We need to listen to different points of view. We need to find ways to have respectful conversation around difficult issues. And I think it begins by seeking out what we have in common rather than focusing on the differences. I recently was reading about, um, and it's uh, Taylor's book, A More Perfect Union, talks about dealing with the issue of abortion, for example, how people who are on different sides of the issue where you can come together rather than being so polarized and again, seeing each other as the enemy to say, we both have value for human life. We both value human life to try to find where is the common ground in a particular issue rather than just focusing on the differences. And that we need to recognize and treat each other with respect and compassion And perhaps we need to recognize our own faults and our complicity in the brokenness of this country and the brokenness in our relationships with one another, how our own individual lives or congregations or our political party, how we have contributed to the brokenness. There can be no healing of our country unless we face the truth, repent, and move forward together. You mentioned Adam Russell Taylor's A More Perfect Union. On the uh, the last two chapters, the author is identifying the uh, features of dignity for all and the need to revitalize and reinvent democracy. And then also, in, and I want to commend that, as you did, to the listener. And also to your book, The World is About to Turn. The listener can find that at www.theworldisabouttoturn.com. We're also going to have references underneath this podcast so you can locate that. I want to thank you so much for taking the time, Rick Ross, to be in conversation with us today. And I hope this is the beginning of a number of very constructive conversations that are essential for uh, strengthening our democracy all around us. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. Good to be with you. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the Center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.